0: From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. This is part of our Everything You Need to Know About Pastoring series with today's focus on large churches. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with Bryant Wright, Senior Pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. Today's conversation is brought to you by Bellhaven University, preparing students academically and spiritually to serve Christ Jesus in their careers, in human relationships, and in the world of ideas. Located in Jackson, Mississippi, Bellhaven offers 70 areas of study, including academic majors and concentrations across a full spectrum of disciplines, as well as the new Master of Ministry Leadership program. Be a transformational leader. More at bellhaven.edu. And now, let's join in.
1: I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here today with Bryant Wright. Bryant has been the senior pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church outside of Atlanta since 1981, when the church had a membership of about 20 families. Now it has seven Sunday morning worship services with an average worship attendance of 4,000. Bryant is also the founder of Right From The Heart Ministries, in which he shares encouraging messages across several secular media outlets. He has also written five books. Brian has served on several boards and is past president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Brian, you have done a lot, and you have led well, and it's just great to have you with us today.
2: Well, it's great to be with you and great to be able to visit with you once again. Please.
1: So, Johnson Ferry um, it was a small church compared to most uh, when you were starting there with 20 families, and now you have thousands in weekly attendance. So, I don't know how you summarize decades, but what happened? Um, how well, and when did all this happen?
2: Well, God has blessed us beyond what we deserve. I rely. and really, uh, the twenty families were not even a church. They were just a gathering of folks hoping for a new congregation in our part of North Carolina. And to be called to be a church planner in those days was uh, a unique calling, especially coming from a very large church to. Uh, lead this congregation with no staff, no uh, facility, and no land. So it was really a great step of faith, but thankfully, God has blessed it beyond anything I could have ever dreamed of, and just very thankful to be able to stay in one church all these years and really pastor not only Johnson Ferry, but you began to pastor and hopefully have a positive influence for Christ and the whole community.
1: All right, so I'm not just guessing. I I know this was not a straight-line growth from when you started up until today, so there had to be plateaus along the way, right?
2: There were plateaus, and and for about the first 20 years, the plateaus were usually related to simply being out of space or out of parking. And so we had to have – we've had six capital campaigns over these last uh, 37 years, and a lot of times that was addressing – plateau situations. Um, we have continued to grow numerically in membership. Uh, baptisms have continued to be strong. Our uh, ministry giving to the budget has continued to grow on an annual basis, but we have hit a plateau over the last few years in worship attendance uh, that I think is also happening in a lot of churches around the country as people are coming less frequently to worship these days. So we've had the plateaus early days related to lack of facility opportunities and lack of space, but uh, in the last few years, it's been different in regards to attendance.
1: Brian, I'm going to squeeze in a story about you, which you may not remember, but it was uh, impressive to me. You talk about your capital campaigns. One time, you and I were in your car in the Johnson Ferry parking lot, and you were embarking on a capital campaign, and I really liked your car. It was an SUV. And you said, well, I'm gonna sell it. And I said, why are you gonna sell it? And your answer was, so that I can give more to this capital campaign. I don't know if you remember this, but you totally impressed me with the level <laughs> of your commitment because it was a really nice car. <laughs>
2: well, honestly, I don't remember that leap, but I do know that my wife Ann and I have had to decide through many campaigns what we were gonna sacrifice or give up and. It's really been a very exciting journey in that regard because each time God obviously meets the needs in our life, whatever decisions were made.
1: So were you surprised by this growth or, or when you had 20 families and you, did you think, Oh, someday this is going to be a mega church?
2: I didn't know we'd be the size we are now Lee, but I certainly hope we would become a larger church. Having grown up in a large church in Atlanta, having served in a large church in Houston, as a staff person before I came to be the first pastor of Johnson Ferry, certainly hoping for that. I just didn't realize how quickly it would grow and the size we would become. Because you know, a lot of what's happened with the megachurches around America, I think a lot of us who are founding pastor types uh, just didn't realize how the megachurch movement was taking off right in front of our eyes as the boomer generation was leading a lot of these generation, a lot of these churches.
1: So tell us how your role changed, because when you're so long in one church and giving pastoral leadership, there are different chapters along the way that are probably distinct one from the other. So how, how, did, how did you change? How did the role change, I guess, uh, as the church grew?
2: I think the role changes in the sense that you, become, you have to become a master delegator, and you have to be willing to give up areas of ministry that you really enjoy. For instance, uh, I was a volunteer and life leader in my university days, and I love working with students. And in the early days, I led the student camps in the summer and ministries like that. Uh, you're really a general practitioner in those early days because you're doing everything from setting up chairs and a doctor's office for worship the next day to working with the students, uh, just all kind of things you wouldn't normally do as pastor a large church. So there's a constant handoff. And really early on, I began to develop the discipline of acting off of certain responsibilities every year, just looking at my overall responsibilities and trying to hand off three or four areas every single year. So I think you just go from a practitioner doing mostly everything, the zeroing in on the areas that you feel the greatest sense of giftedness in and passion in and responsibility in.
1: Any particular lessons that you learned along the way that could be helpful to others that are following your journey?
2: Well, I think we're all going to make mistakes along the way. I think coming from a very fruitful large church in Houston uh, with a pastor that I greatly respected, I had to realize that uh, my leadership style would be different I had to unlearn things that weren't necessarily sure. bad things on the part of the pastor I had served under, but just my approach to ministry, my approach to pastoring was going to be different. And I think you're sorting that out as a young pastor because we're all still kind of finding our way till the middle years of life uh, in having the clarity of who we really are. And where God wants us to emphasize and grow the churches and lead the churches that he has entrusted to us. So I think it was, you know, tons of mistakes, tons of venturing out and new ideas, probably a little too quickly in the early days when I would hear the exciting things happening in other churches. Just giving it time to soak and ask, does this really fit who we are in the culture of Johnson Ferry along the way?
1: All right, let's skip from the early days to today. So what are some right. challenges that are in your current role?
2: Well, I, I feel like at this point, Lee, I'm in the fourth quarter of ministry, and I know you understand that, and just trying to discern from God how long to stay when it's healthy to hand this off, and have been working on really succession planning for over four years with the elders of the church Uh, knowing this time is rapidly approaching. It's approaching in churches all over America with Boomer pastors now. So that's a big part of what I feel I'm focusing on, because I want to finish strong as well as have the church continue to be healthy long after I've had the privilege of pastoring at Johnson Superior. So that's a major focus now. But I think what happened as far as the leadership of the church uh, from those early years was just coming to a clarity that any pastor of a mega church that's going to be fruitful has to have two gifts. You have to have gift in leadership. You have to have a gift in preaching, teaching, communication, so to speak, on the pulpit. Those are indispensable gifts, and everything else can be handed off to someone else. Now, that doesn't mean I'm sharing the preaching load now more than ever. Rather than preaching 45 to 48 times a year, uh, and really in the early days, more like 48 to 49 times a year. Now, I dropped down to about 37 to 38 Sundays. So I, I'm sharing that with our three teaching pastors as part of the long-term preparation for when I'm no longer the pastor of Johnson Ferry. But I think uh, you still have to be the primary communicator as well as the primary leader and vision caster for the, for the church.
1: Maybe that applies to every chapter and every size, but can you distinguish from the parishioner's point of view, from those in the pew, how the expectations that they have of you as a pastor are different from when you have 20 families to when you have thousands of people and each of the stages in between? Because it's not just you who's changing, they're changing too, and they're changing their expectations of you. So how do they vary?
2: Well, I think one thing that I was conscious of having come from larger churches, is is the personal attention, if you will, whether it's a hospital visit or a family crisis. I I wanted to be sensitive of precedence in those early days. And I think you have the time to be there much more intensely in a family crisis or hospital needs along the way. But I really didn't do that as much in the early days, anticipating we were going to be a larger church so that there wouldn't be a disappointment down the line. At the same time, I think when you become a larger church, the average church member really is not expecting you to have that personal touch. And any personal touch you have is almost a pleasant surprise. Uh, matter of fact, I've commented to many folks uh, that I may have maybe had a long-term relationship with that I visited in the hospital in a serious situation, or they were a leader of our church that I was visiting. I walk in and reassure them, look, I don't want you to be alarmed that I'm here. Uh, I don't think this means you're gonna die very soon, you know, because they often, oh my goodness, the pastor's here. This is uh, a, <laughs> I I must be sicker than I thought. So kinda of, kinda of, kinda of joke about uh those things along the way. And at the same time realize that the congregation, when you're a larger church, really doesn't expect that personal touch near as much as often is the case in smaller or medium sized churches.
1: An advantage that you have had though is um Because you were there through each of those phases, you know a lot of people by name, you know their children, you know their stories, because it's spread out over time. So when a successor comes, there are thousands of people whose stories they don't know, and there's many ways in which they can't ever quite catch up to where you are. All right, let's talk about money. Um, That's often especially a challenge for pastors of small churches, and Actually, there are a lot of bivocational pastors, and the number seems to be growing, who are just struggling to buy health insurance and you know, pay off their credit cards and all those things. So I'm thinking it's probably not the same challenge for pastors of large churches. So how have you experienced different kinds of financial challenges? And you know, there's an adage, I'm not totally sure I agree with it, that says more money, more problems. Is that true in the church context? Talk about money.
2: Well, they uh, you're only going to have the money challenges no matter what size your church, it's just that the size of them can seem overwhelming times my wife and I have had personal challenges in each of those cattle campaigns as we were really led to step out on faith beyond what we could humanly do so we had those exciting but often scary times of making pledges along the way wondering how God was going to meet our needs that so we could fulfill those pledges. And thankfully he always did. And that was a very uh wonderful faith builder along the way personally. But when you're in a situation like we're in now in the early days our, our first budget lease was eighty eight thousand dollars for the whole year. Now our budget is a little over twenty two million for the year. So you know a great Sunday uh Needs to be in the high 300,000s versus in the early days. A great Sunday might be two or three thousand, and yet a sense of stress as a pastor is always there because um, the situation is different. It's just the size of that is is so different along the way. So, and you feel a greater responsibility. Uh, When I was the only staff person, it's one thing, but when you have you know 180 on your staff. You feel an obligation to care for them as well, uh, so there's a there's a greater pressure in a sense. But I also feel like this great pressure in the early days when the dollars were much lower along the way. You had no idea where they were going to come from. there. just the size of them. I will say one other thing. We made a decision at first budget of eighty eight thousand that we wanted to pledge a tithe to emissions in that budget of. Uh, at least 10%. We gave 11% of that $88,000 budget, 10% to our denominational missions, and then 1% to Young Life because we we didn't want to be limited uh, with a denominational vision, but we wanted to have a kingdom vision. And God has really blessed that by being able to increase the percentages to global missions and to other ministries outside our denominational heritage in a way that it has become really the greatest God thing Uh, in the ministry of Johnson Ferry through the years, what he's allowed us to do in global missions. So I really encourage a small church, a startup church, to really step out on faith in giving to global missions rather than just to the ministry in your local community, because I think God blesses that.
1: Several years ago, I had a conversation with a Southern Baptist leader, and I don't exactly know what the question was that I asked. It was something like, um, tell me what's going on with uh, younger pastors and church planters and all that in the Southern Baptist Convention. And the response was, every one of them wants to grow up to be Bryant Wright. So <laughs> here's here's the challenge. Here's the question. What 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 does it mean to be a megachurch pastor? What, what are the challenges and dangers that a megachurch pastor faces that maybe other pastors don't face?
2: Well, I think for one thing, you have a greater platform. And so there is a natural influence uh, that culture looks to, both culture within the Christian community as well as outside the Christian community. And so there is a sense of greater responsibility of what is said, how you lead, uh, the focus you have in your ministry, the priorities you have in your ministry. I think, though, Leith, as you know, uh, the greatest danger in becoming a megachurch pastor is pride. There's no there's no sin more insidious than pride. And just to always remind ourselves, this is something God has done. Uh, if there's any giftedness there, certainly megachurch pastors are going to need specific gifts in leadership and in the preaching and teaching realm. But all that is from God. And there are many hundreds and and eventually thousands of people have joined with you in that mission and all have had a role in that. So uh, just don't want to become prideful. You don't want to become too removed from personal accountability, which is where I think having elders uh, and at Johnson Ferry, <laughs> we made that decision in the late 80s. I couldn't find a single Southern Baptist Church that had elders in those days. I'm sure there were some, but it was a real of faith. To have an elder led governance, a Southern Baptist church. But the good thing, I have six godly laymen around me that are free to ask me any questions about personal life or disagree with something I feel would be important uh, as a new ministry, a new direction for the church. And I think that's a help that mm-hmm. pastors need to have in order to stay on the right track, to ensure that we're staying in God's will and being God's man. In that particular role.
1: If we look back a generation or two, a really large church in America was a thousand at worship on uh, a Sunday morning, and now megachurches are defined as two thousand, some would say three thousand, you know, different numbers. But it has really dramatically multiplied in just one generation or two at the most. So why do you think this is? And I guess the, the other question is: is is this a generational fad? Are we going to go back to having fewer megachurches or are we on a trajectory here where there are going to be even more megachurches and this is going to continue into the future?
2: Well, on that two-fold question, I think what has happened is we move from more and more from rural to urban and in the metropolitan areas like you pastored in in Minnesota and I'm pastoring in, in Atlanta. Uh, you also have. Uh, the giant hospitals with specialists and people come from all over for those specialists. And I think that's really what's happened in the church. You know, the beauty of the megachurch is that the ministers on our staff, they are specialists. They get to minister in their sweet spot of giftedness and passion. And I think that's a beautiful thing. As we are all joined together in a common mission and common core values for our local church, we get to focus in areas where God has specifically gifted us. And I think that allows for uh, greater opportunities in ministry along the way. So I think the rural to urban, the large churches, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, all that is a cultural shift that is allowed for the mega churches. I don't know about the future. None of us know the future, but I think in the future, what you're going to see is even larger megachurches, which is already happening. We're really not one of the larger megachurches now. Would you see churches running 30 and 40,000 on the weekend? Uh, I think they're going to be even larger megachurches. A lot of that is related to technology and video. I don't know whether there will be as many of those. And obviously, the multi-site approach now is just boomed across America, largely through megachurches. I'm a little bit suspicious of that long-term, because I think with the charismatic, gifted, first-generation leader of those multi-site churches, I think many of them are probably going to do what Keller has done in New York. And when he retired, my understanding was that those sites would become their own churches. I think that's probably going to have to
1: happen over time. So church size, if you ask people, what size church would you like to go to? I'm not sure they actually say these words, but uh, they come pretty close to say, oh, I'd like to go to a church of 300 that does everything for me that a church of 30,000 can do. So that's right. <laughs> as a result, they, they want a church that's uh, sort of a medium size, but has the services of a very large congregation. There are far more smaller churches and there are larger churches. So be an apologist here and Make the case for a large church. Why do we need? Why do we want? What's what's the value? And if you were talking to somebody, how would you convince them? Not necessarily Johnson Ferry, but how would they go to a, a church that's large? Why should they do that?
2: Well, for one thing, large or small is neither good nor bad. I mean, you have large churches that are heretical. You have small churches that are heretical. You have large churches that have a great spirit and a great love within the fellowship. And you have large churches that don't, as well as small churches the same there. So um, I really believe that it is up to God to determine the size of the church. Our responsibility is to be the best stewards of the gifts that God has entrusted to us. And if for some reason he chooses to bless the church to become a megachurch, then we have a responsibility to make that megachurch small for those that come into the church. And what I mean by that is where they can find a sense of community because the average person within a church is not going to know more than 75 people. So we have got to have systematic structure within that mega church to allow them to find their church within a church is what we call it at Johnson Ferry, so that they begin to feel it is small once they come inside. Because the major hesitation of people coming to Johnson Ferry is they're intimidated by the size. They tell us that over and over again. So we have to go to extra lengths to help them find that church within a church where they can have a sense of community, the fellowship, the Christian fellowship that really makes them want to stay and feel a part of the fellowship.
1: So there's some pastors um, and maybe people who are in seminary or college and that they're trained to be pastors. And they want to be the pastor of a large church, often because they grew up in a large church, or or that's sort of been their church experience. Or maybe they just believe that that's what God's calling them to do. So you said earlier that the pastor of a large church needs to be good at two things, to lead and to preach. And those are no small tasks uh, to be a good pastor and a good preacher. And they don't always go together. Um, But you've already stated that. Are there other things that a person has to have to be effective in order to pastor a large church, sort of the profile of what that person uh, needs to be?
2: Well, I think in mentioning those two things, you just have to be willing to hand off a lot of areas of ministry that you would like to be personally involved in. And if you're not willing to hand it off, you're probably going to limit the size of the church or the growth of the church. That's That's just a reality. And I a lot of pastors want to have that personal touch with everybody in their local church. Well, if that's the case, you're going to be called to pastor a small to medium-sized church. But if you're willing to hand it off to people who are more gifted than you in other areas, such as working with children, working with students, working in the women's ministry, working in the sports and fitness ministries, if you're willing to hand that off, then there is the opportunity for the church to become larger as long as you have the leadership gifts to both delegate and verify. I love Reagan's words, trust, but verify. And that's the big decision a pastor has to be able to make if it is going to become a larger megachurch.
1: There has to be changes along the way, though. So you you talk about a pastor who wants to be more of a chaplain and wants to know everybody and do everything. My guess is you have not set up a lot of chairs or changed many diapers in the nursery this year. You probably haven't (laughs) done those things for a long time. But at the beginning, you probably had to do some of those things. And even if somebody senses a call or their desire is to pastor a large church, they, they, they can't start out delegating everything. At the beginning, they've got to do stuff and then delegate later. I mean, isn't that kind of obvious? You're
2: exactly right. You're exactly right. I mean, and in, in, that's why I say a general practitioner in the early days because I was involved in every single aspect of the ministry. There was no choice. I was even involved in setting up chairs in the lobby of that uh, unleashed doctor's office where we met for the first year and a half. So you have to be willing uh, to do all of those jobs along the way and then let the Holy Spirit give you, hopefully, the wisdom of when to hand off certain things and when to call new staff. In the early days, we always had to call new staff before we could afford them. But our philosophy was, uh, if we find the right person, they will pay for themselves in the sense of the growth and the fruitfulness of the ministry. But at the same time, as you know, there's a fine line between faith and foolishness, and you can get ahead of things, maybe making that decision too soon along the way. And that's a lot of learning. uh, And we all make mistakes with some of those. Uh, staff callings along the way. But uh, I think it, you have to be willing to do it all if the church is going to grow and then hand it off in God's timing as you're delegating along the way.
1: Suppose we talk for a minute about uh, transition, retirement, succession, and that's not necessarily a large church issue, although, you know, in, in, in many ways it sort of adds pressure. I, I think of the person that is uh, your successor follows you after 35 You're more than 35 years. I mean, that, that's really a big deal. So well, what are you thinking about this? You mentioned about being in the fourth quarter. Uh, you're watching the clock and what's going to happen.
2: It is heavily on my mind. And uh, as you know, Lee, succession, even at its best planning and preparation, there's still unknown results. Is it going to be successful? And I really hope knowing that the odds of, of following a founding long-tenured pastor have the least chance for success, I really pray that Johnson Ferry will be able to beat those odds. Uh, we've been doing a lot of study, a lot of preparation over the last four years, when I say we, myself and the elders. But obviously, it's weighing on me more than anyone. So, I'm hoping and praying that we're going to be able to beat the odds and find a, a younger man that will be able to connect with the millennial Gen X generation and generations that follow in a way to continue to be true to the Word of God and to be true to Christ's Great Commission. Really hoping and praying for that. Uh, but there's, you know, with all the study, whether it's a secular entity and a corporate culture, whether it's a large church ministry, uh, there are huge disappointments that occur along the way. So, a lot of prayer, a lot of preparation for that. I do think that successor has to understand the culture, though, you know, when you think that every staff person has come under my leadership. Well, that successor is gonna have to understand that corporate culture, and no matter how gifted he is from a leadership standpoint, as, as Croker says, Uh, Culture Trump's strategy when it comes to leadership, and I I think that's going to be the big deal for whoever follows me. But I also think, Lee, it's going to be the major responsibility is going to lie not only with me, but uh, my wife and I, because we have got to be willing to let go, to get out of the way, to uh, verbally support that successor along the way for him to have the opportunity to, to succeed. And so, when you poured your life into a ministry like this all these years, I'm hoping and praying. That's what I can do when that time comes. Because I know that's not easy. You've already been through that, and God has blessed you all there. I'd love to see that blessing happen at Johnson Ferry.
1: I once asked uh, a Southern Baptist megachurch pastor of an earlier generation when he retired, and I asked him about it, and he had a really interesting statement. He said, every time God has an Elijah on the stage, he has an Elisha waiting in the wings. Um, uh, he was pretty optimistic, but may that be true for Johnson Ferry—that uh, you are the Elijah, and that God has an Elisha waiting in the wings. So, one I'm last question: for that. What excites you uh, about ministry in a large church?
2: Well, I really think what excites me is—is is what I shared earlier—that I think, uh, especially the ministerial staff gets to minister in their area of passion and giftedness. And that's exciting because how that benefits those who are led to be members of that local church. Uh, It allows you to have a quality of ministry and ministry leadership that is very exciting to see. And the impact that can have for the kingdom of God and reaching people for Christ and seeing people being discipled in their faith and seeing people discover their area of ministry is very exciting.
1: Our guest on today's conversation has been Bryant Wright, senior pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Bryant.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.